Right, the reading's taken from Acts 25. Um, I'm just going to try and remember the verses now. Three to five? Oh, yeah, 13 to 17, and then 23 to 27, and the whole of Acts 26. So I'll start off on 25, uh, verse 13. Festus consults King Agrippa. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. Verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I am conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. 
On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. 
After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, one of the things I love about Scripture is there are lots of things that always strike you when you've read things before, but for some reason this week, I can't help but smile at the name Benice. It kind of just reminds me of sort of a, a, sort of a soap opera in Yorkshire or something like that, rather than a kind of Roman's wife. Uh, but uh, let's, before, we, before we begin, let me just pray as I've dropped my notes. Heavenly Father, you are a God who fulfills his promises, a God who is with us, a God who is faithful and just. That Jesus, you are our true king. And Father, I ask this morning as we continue in our worship, would you reveal yourself afresh to each one of us? Strengthen us in our inner being. Because we need you this morning. We really do need you. Because you alone are the true king and worthy of all our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder this morning whether there's anybody who really detests driving round roundabouts. Anybody kind of get sort of blood pressure goes up, nervousness comes as you come. Anybody that's true for? Not many people admit to feeling that. Clearly not many people either feel intimidated or nervous. Uh, I've been with some people who, who do, so I kind of actually, sometimes it can be quite intimidating. But what about if I asked, can anybody name a really famous roundabout? At the magic roundabout, as in... As, Oh, I'm coming to that in a second. Fantastic. I thought you were talking about the cartoon, which ages me. But actually, yes, you're talking about Swindon. We'll be there in a minute. Uh, anybody, anything else? Say again. Oh, Hogan and Hammersmith. Okay, right, okay. Art to Trip, yep. Spaghetti Junction? Art to Trip, okay. If you want to put a picture up. Invented and designed. Who the hell invented and designed elephant and castles roundabout? I was lost for about 20 minutes. I was going round and round, ring a ring of roses, pocket full of poses. We are going to get to this video in a second. <laughs> oh, it's gone too early. Yeah, there we go. Arts Triomphe, France. Centre, lots of lanes, 12 roads, all approaching one roundabout. Anybody driven round it? Pete Rogers, you survived? In a hire car. Oh, yeah, that's right. Have you cycled around it? Well, all, all power to you, Robert, is all I can say. You know, uh, where angels fear to tread. You know, the people who write about it and putting their lives in their hands as they get there. And, you know, in a slightly stereotypical way, lots of the people who comment about driving around say, it's gloriously French. As in, you get to the, to the end of the road, it's marshalled, and then you just go. 
Uh, and so, and actually the laws around it mean that actually it's your responsibility, 50-50 responsibility if you crash. So, you know, actually it's on all, everybody's interest to try and remain safe on it. Faye, you are absolutely right. Uh, if you put up the next slide, if that's all right. Regularly in, in conversations in the UK, where is the worst roundabout in the UK, apart from maybe London, but always up in the top is this magic roundabout, it's called, in Swindon. Five small roundabouts around a big roundabout. Uh, it's actually the person who designed it uh, was someone called, I forgot his name, um, Frank Blackmore in 1972, and he's become famous because of actually this one piece of design that he did in, in trying to, and people regularly get very, very flustered at coming to it. They can be really difficult. This is a video that I found this week that we've had a little preview of, of someone called Judy Love, apparently is a celebrity, I didn't know much about her, but this is her experience of going, literally going around, just having gone around about in London. Hopefully. Who the hell invented and designed Elephant and Castle's roundabout? I was lost for about 20 minutes. I was going round and round, ring a ring of roses, pocket full of poses. I tissue you, I tissue you, me damn rass lost. It's too much. I was in South London and at one stage I felt like I was in East. That's the kind of roundabout that you bring your Bible with you. You bring your Bible, your Quran, you bring sound with you, like a holy war, because you just want to get to the other side safe. You know what? Forget congestion, Charles. You just want people to say, now, nah, I love it. I'm not going through Elephant and Castle, yeah? The idea of a roundabout is to lessen the traffic. Instead, there's still traffic. I felt like I was in Crystal Maze. I felt like I was on Crichton Factor. Is that even the name? Kryptonite, Krypton Factor. No, you have to be Superwoman and Superman to get round and roundabout. Today's passage may seem familiar. Thank you, Melanie, for reading so beautifully through a really long uh, Bible passage. But it may seem familiar because actually over the last week we've seen Paul in front of Roman rulers, Felix and Festus, uh, and with the Jewish leaders in the background wanting to kill Paul. Paul now stands in this hearing that we heard before Herod Agrippa II, sorry. Someone who did an experienced leader, a king, ruled for over 50 years, who knew the traditions, knew the kind of law, and ruled there as well. And as Paul is under huge personal pressure, who's been in prison for ages, Paul must have a certain sense of deja vu. Okay, I've been here before. I've been here before. This is just another ruler who is coming to try and get me to give an account. But Paul, in the text, and those who know something of Paul's time, seems remarkably unchanged in many ways. He rebuffs all the charges, which you'll find in chapter 6. And what we see in chapter 6 may look familiar, because actually it's very similar but subtly different to many of the other passages we've looked at as we've gone through the book of Acts. Paul is faithful to some of one of the biblical writers look at actually the shape of the text and say what Paul is trying to say, he's someone who's been faithful to tradition. He persecuted others as part of being a Pharisee and actually detesting Jesus. He's actually now, as an experience at Damascus Road, is called to be a witness by Jesus himself. 
Jesus said, Paul then serves as a witness in 19 to 20. Paul then has been persecuted in verse 21. And now Paul is faithful tradition. It's a beautiful piece of writing of an account that Luke puts together of Paul's account before Agrippa. What you'll notice and you'll see in, in, in the passage is that Paul definitely moves from defense into offense. He doesn't just sit there sort of paralyzed but actually engages with Agrippa and moves it into, so Agrippa, you believe in this, you know this, you know that. Do you believe it? Do you believe the prophets? And the thing is this, it can be incredibly difficult, incredibly hard in life when you find yourself stuck in the same story. I've had a couple of conversations, particularly in the last few weeks, about how painful that can be You know, where the underlying story in your life is going round and round and round and round in circles and not escaping. It's painful feeling stuck, being grounded, going nowhere. It's a little bit like being on on a vinyl record, a sense of being in an ever-decreasing circle knowing that actually this isn't necessarily the best that God wants for you, but actually finding yourself, finding yourself unable to discover the fullness of life that you believe you're called to. And this morning, I just simply want to say to you, if that is you this morning, not here, here, just take this morning about being honest before God. That would be more one prayer for you. Offer that sense of purposeness, that sense of going round in circles before God. Because the danger is, if you don't, self-pity, bitterness, will start to consume your life. But actually, God invites us as we come to worship together, invites us every time we come to worship, on our own, with friends, life groups, and all sorts of ways, but also when we do it here on a Sunday, to draw near to him, to ask him for help. And as we come before us, we have a sense of being in the presence of God. Maybe God will lead you into some things that just start to bubble up that you need to repent of, or actually God wants to speak affirmation over your life. And you actually need to listen and allow it to go in here, deep down. In the next couple of weeks, uh, as we mentioned in the prayers and also at the beginning of the service, we've got a couple of funerals both of Darren and Catherine, two very different people, but both of whom wrestled with suffering, with difficult medical stuff, but sought to center their lives somewhere with Jesus. And ultimately, we do all that we do in faith, knowing that God is faithful to his promises. It's his judgment that matters in the end. What I think, and being frank, what you think, is not the last word. It's what God thinks. That's the perspective we're here for. That's what it means to be people of God's kingdom. That's the ultimate reality, and that we can do that in the trust of forgiveness, his word, and many other things that enable us to come before him and to trust him afresh each day. So let me get back to the passage briefly. 
When Christians are talked about, asked about, maybe you've been asked occasionally, you know, why do you go to church? You know, maybe they're not interested, but maybe some people ask you, you know, what's the heart of Christianity? What's the good news of Jesus? Where do we go? Where do you go? I wonder where you go when you're asked that question. Many of us who've been around the church for a long period of time, in particular parts of the church, will, will say that the essence of Christianity is found in a cross. And we'll wear our cross, not so common these days, but wear a cross on maybe the outside of our clothes or something round our necks. And you know, that is an amazing thing. That's why we do it, a cross. But one of the things when we go through Acts and you look through Acts is that as well as a cross, we find that the resurrection is more central. An empty tomb is as important as an empty cross. An empty tomb is that Paul again and again talks about the resurrection. It's about the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is the heart and essence of the good news of Jesus. Is the resurrection that central for us this morning? I hope the answer to that is yes, but if you're not sure, take some time to look at it. In Acts, the resurrection is mentioned far more times than the cross. The resurrection is mentioned 11 times, the cross 3. Jesus crucified is mentioned 9 times, the resurrection raised to life is mentioned 16 times. And Paul, outside of this passage, in, in one of his letters to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, says this, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, is my gospel. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, is my gospel. The resurrection brings to life a message of new life and new hope, of hope beyond despair. And the possibility of renewal of all things. One of the things when I was at Theological College, which is a while ago now, but one of the things I remember, amongst many things I seem to have forgotten, but one of the things I remember was a number of our lecturers would constantly say to us, hold together the cross and resurrection. Hold together the cross and resurrection. Jesus' mission isn't just to forgive our sins and deliver us from judgment. That's often the thing we talk about if we just stop at the cross. But resurrection, restoration, and bringing us to eternal glory with our loving Heavenly Father. We are resurrection people. And the resurrection is our only means of our salvation. And three times Paul insists that he stands on trial because of hope in the resurrection of the dead. Three times. And the reality of that resurrection, the reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection is this. It shatters the hopes of paganism of the time and first century Judaism of that time. And what that means for us, for those who are in the line of people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, is that all man-made religions, all efforts to be good, all efforts to make it, all efforts to save ourselves will never be enough. Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why Paul stands before these Roman leaders. Paul explains in Romans 4 and other places in Romans 4, for example, 25, we who trust in the resurrection are justified. We are made right. Our place is being right 
with God. The resurrection and the cross, the finished work of Jesus, are enough for us. The atoning blood, the blood shed on the cross, fully paid the price for all our sin. And the joyous truth of the of death and resurrection of Jesus is that all of us can be saved by grace, God's grace, through trusting, through faith in Christ alone. And why that's so important for us is it becomes a place, the resurrection becomes a place that seals and confirms the truth of the joyous news of Jesus. He's done it. Jesus has done it for us, broken the cycle of going round and round and round, of trying to be good enough for God and never making it. Never making it. Trying hard, and I've done my best in my life to try and show that I'm righteous before God. It will never work, never be enough. He had to do it for us. Jesus did it for us. And the glorious power of the living resurrection of Jesus confirms the promises that God's promises are true. That we can know a glorious future in spite of all the circumstances we face. Paul, in this text, said in verse 8 in this text, for those who've got it in, verse, in chapter 26, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises people from the dead? I mean, what kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God is worth worshipping if God can't do that? I mean, why wouldn't you believe in that? What kind of God do you want? And actually then goes on to say in verse 26, and remember, all this was done in public. There was not hidden away in a corner. It was witnessed. It was evidenced. It was, it was there before them. And what that means for us is this, as Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, says Paul, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's God's promises. Christians are resurrection people. We are resurrection people. We are resurrection people. And that's incredibly good news for us today. As we've journeyed through Acts, kind of one of the noticeable things amongst all the kind of things that Paul gets up to in his missionary journeys and being shipwrecked and in prison and miraculously released and all sorts of things, there is an assurance of Paul when he's under the most pressure that is quite something to behold in some ways. And actually some of that is a kind of testimony to the fact that he's understood the power of the resurrection that means his life is in God's hands for eternity. And however much is thrown at him, whatever is thrown at him, ultimately that will be, not be the last word for his life. In verse 25, he also says, you know, when actually he's under the heat of Agrippa coming at him, he says, what I'm saying to you is true and reasonable. You know it, Agrippa. You know the scriptures. You know the tradition I've come to. What I'm saying to you makes sense. And that bit in verse 24, you know, Paul, are you out of your mind? Do you really believe this stuff? Are you gone bonkers? You know, the resurrection is offensive to culture. And when Paul has lost all his human freedoms and control, 
He's in chains. He's been in prison. That's been there for a very long time. The resurrection is the place of security, the place of certainty, the place of assurance that whatever life throws at us, however difficult things get, how many bad choices you make or the people you spend your life with make that affect you, are the events of a life that you find yourselves drawn into, that our lives are secure with Christ and in Christ. The God who raised Jesus to life will raise us with him. That's for eternity. Darkness to light. That's our promise. That's our security. That's who we trust. And of course, in all the sorrow and the darkness and the difficulty of living in this world, all the pain and the grieving, that when we kind of live lives close to each other and realize some of the things people are carrying, some of the things our families are carrying, some of our friends are carrying in our lives, we can know that we are held by the extraordinary grace of God. We are held by him. And all the smaller battles you're facing in your Christian life, to live faithfully, to live victoriously, to live whatever else it is, your kind of biggest challenge maybe this morning is to just to simply reaffirm your simple trust in him for the present, for today. Lord, I trust you. Not because that undoes your salvation, but just simply to keep walking with a living God who longs to walk with you wherever you go. And as we trust God, his promises, his word, his presence, his his power, do continue to shape and direct our lives in a beautiful way. You know, the timing, I was having a conversation on this week about Darren's death and there's a whole load of people who have been part of his community finding it really difficult Um, but I've seen the grace of God's timing at work in Darren's life that actually I see it as a, a glorious grace and mercy that God took him when he did and that's not my that happens to be what I think you don't need to agree with me but there's something about God's timing, God's perspective that we don't see that we need to trust. So this morning I want to encourage you as we get towards the end of Acts, keep going, keep going. Allow the truths of the gospel, the truths of who Jesus is to seep deeper into our hearts, our minds and our lives so that you're able to live for him this week. As we stand before God, as we sit here this morning, maybe we simply need to say, Lord, fill me afresh with your life. Would you help me? Would you help me to stand and not shrink back? You know, I'm facing all sorts of challenges. I can't do it, Lord. And the temptation is to give up. The last verse in the bit we read, verse 82, is kind of, I think, just a a lovely little acknowledgement of the temptation most of us live with. When Paul has been obedient to God and... Uh, done the things he'd called to, even Agrippa said, you know, Paul, you could have been free today if you hadn't appealed to Caesar. How many of the what-ifs shape our life? We spend our life thinking about what if, what if, what if. It's such a temptation to live in the past, to live in what could have happened, but God, in his grace, is getting Paul to Rome. That's his purpose for him.
uh, one of the amazing things, one of the amazing parts of being a vicar of this parish of Walcott is the amazing beauty and diversity in it. In fact, I started with talks of roundabouts. But people, where was the circus? You mentioned the circus. It's actually in our parish, people. <laughs> kind of one of the most famous roundabouts in the UK, just along the road there. Designed by John Wooden. What inspired him may have not been one of the greatest things, it might be true to say. However, it is considered to be a masterpiece of architecture. And so this morning, my challenge to you as well is this. If you're feeling stuck this morning and you know you're that person, there are choices open to us. Each day we face choices. And glorious for me, in a moment of either overdoing it or inspiration, you can decide. Uh, I thought there's a trinity of exits this morning from going round in circles. This morning you can choose to worship, to look upwards this week, to join in with what God is calling you to. You can choose to look outwards, to see in all the world that God may have called you to a whole lot of people who you can bless and you alone can bless. We may have called you inwards, deeper into the kind of blessing the people that are part of the church, and the life of the church, the community of faith. And you can choose to be used by God in that. This morning, God invites us to join in his life and his mission, his purposes this morning. So I wonder whether you maybe just close your eyes for a moment. Close your eyes, and maybe if you find it helpful, just put your hands in, on your lap in front of you. Holy Spirit, would you come afresh upon us? Come, Holy Spirit, I pray this morning. Minister your love and your grace afresh in our hearts and in our lives. You alone know what we need. You alone know what will help us move and make good choices for you. Maybe you just need to quietly, and I'm just going to leave a moment of quiet. You just need to ask for God's help. It's as simple as that. And Father, we're sorry, I'm sorry, when we've got caught feeling sorry for ourselves, caught in the same cycle of dysfunction, self-pity. Father, I repent, we repent. Father, come afresh in your power 
free us to live the life you've called each one of us, whatever generation we are, whatever stage we are. You've made us for resurrection life. And Father, for those this morning who are facing extreme difficulty, would you come and bring strength and power and love? Would you renew them? Thank you for your loving care of us. Thank you for your kind. That you do draw near. Thank you for your presence in our lives and in this church, in this community. Would you fan into flame the gift that is St. Swithin's, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.